Hey folks, this is Matt Sewell, and you're listening to episode 22 of the Popecast, the podcast about popes for those who like history but aren't real crazy about history books. We're veering away from our usual papal bio for a second straight episode, but for good reason. The world received a historic first recently, as I'm sure many, if not all of you are aware, with the release of a 6,000-word letter by none other than the retired pope himself, Benedict XVI. Since it's fair to assume St. Celestine V never released any documents when he was being imprisoned by Boniface VIII in the 1200s after resigning, and that Gregory XII was living quietly after his resignation to end the Western Schism six centuries ago, we're witnessing something particularly special and unique in the life of the Church. And there's a lot to wade through. Was this even allowed? Was it even good? It's only been a couple weeks, but already there's been much ink spilled, good, bad, and ugly. This is the PopeCast Armchair Papist Guide to Understanding the Letter by Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI. So to start with a brief recap, the letter entitled The Church and the Scandal of Sexual Abuse was written in three parts. Looking at the history, specifically the 60s, 70s, and 80s, for how we even got this problem in the first place. Part 2 covered how the historical context has affected the formation and lives of priests. And then the final part tells us clergy and lay people alike how we might respond to it all. The letter was a breath of fresh air to many within the church, and was characterized as the exact opposite by many others, with the secular media doing what they always do, grabbing their popcorn and reporting incorrectly. This episode of the PopeCast will serve, as I mentioned, as a brief recap of sorts, paired with the audio version of the letter we released a couple weeks ago for those who have neither the time nor the interest to wade through the minefield of Catholic Twitter and other places to sort it all out. So if you haven't yet listened to the audio or read the full letter, I definitely encourage you to do so first, perhaps even before diving into this. Just push pause, grab the episode right before this one in the PopeCast, then come back and continue on. But in any case, here are some takes from all sides, some for, some against, and some tweeting and writing with valuable food for thought for us all. In what you might call the pro column, there's German Cardinal Gerhard Mueller, Archbishop Charles Chaphue of Philadelphia, Mark Barnes of the popular blog Bad Catholic, Father Harrison Ayer of Catholic Twitter and Clerically Speaking fame, and recent guest on the Popecast, Dr. Chad Pecknold of Catholic University of America, and writing at the Catholic Herald, among several others. In the opposing column, those who either disagreed with Benedict, disagreed with him having written and released something at all, or some measure of both, would be most prominently Villanova professor Massimo Fagioli of Commonwealth Magazine, Jesuit father James Martin, National Catholic reporters Jamie Manson, and, predictably, pretty much all of the mainstream media. And finally, on arguably neutral ground is Catholic News Agency, who was the first first to release the letter in English. It's editor-in-chief J.D. Flynn and D.C. Bureau Chief Ed Condon in particular. And as a sidebar, here's two great tweets, one each from Flynn and Condon, to provide some crucial insight into people's reactions when the letter first dropped. So the day after, Ed Condon tweets, I see lots of the Twitters who think they're more Catholic than the Pope Emeritus, and about an equal number who think they're more Catholic than the Pope. But the minority, who seem to think they're more Catholic than both at the same time, that's been a novelty for me. And then there was J.D., was commenting on the proposition that maybe, oh, Benedict could be this sort of parallel pope or something like that, that maybe in some weird uh, benevicantist reality, as you might say, that Benedict still has some level of power in the church. 
J.D. says, The Roman pontiff, by virtue of office, is the head of the College of Bishops, the vicar of Christ and the pastor of the universal church on earth. A man who retires from that office is a bishop, not a quote-unquote parallel pope. His thoughts should be judged on their own merit. That's all. Now, I said arguably neutral ground because at least one of those in the opposing column, Professor Fagioli writing in Commonweal Magazine, instead see Catholic News Agency as a sort of mouthpiece for the quote-unquote conservative wing of the church. And herein lies my main issue with those writing against Benedict's letter. Rarely are they actually assessing Benedict's words with a critical eye and making sound arguments for an opposing viewpoint. Instead, it seems like it's more or less tee-hee-hee, look at what the 92-year-old celibate man said, how cute. It's almost all ad hominem, lacking in crucial substance. At least those praising Benedict look at the letter with a critical eye, and it's well worth noting, don't necessarily endorse it in its entirety either. I would actually agree with many who grant that there is a great deal of truth in what Benedict wrote, but that it's incomplete. And to be fair, I don't think Benedict meant it to be a comprehensive analysis. He did state in the preface, after all, that, quote, I compiled some notes, end quote. And this was actually Mark Barnes at Bad Catholic's main thesis of his most recent post, written with his typical dry wit, entitled, Benedict's Critics Are Not Being Smart. Also, much of those leveling criticism ironically seem to have missed the part where Benedict calls out people like them precisely for the way they tend to criticize the church. That being basically seeing and talking about the church in solely political terms. If there's a key difference on these two opposing viewpoints, it's that those against Benedict talk about conservative and liberal factions, and those who praise Benedict only talk about the goodness in caring for the salvation of souls and listening to Jesus above all else. To that end, Ed Condon from Catholic News Agency points out, Benedict is looking at this from an entirely different angle, that the salvation of souls is the supreme goal of the church, and as a result, everything, everything, both theologically and legally speaking, must serve that end. Where a political body has warring schools of thought, those of conservative and liberal, each arguably having the right answer, where power wins out, the church, on the other hand, has one goal, saving souls by bringing them to salvation in Jesus Christ the only Son of God who died and rose for our sins. In light of this, sexual abuse is to be seen, then, as a crime against the soul as well as the body. And we're kidding ourselves if we believe there's only one victim of each individual crime, noting that there are often, as Condon writes, quote, cascading tears of victims for any one act. Also, any crime of sexual abuse is a crime against the faith itself, as Benedict lays out tragically and beautifully in his parallel of sexual abuse and an abuse of the Holy Eucharist. Noting the story of a girl abused by a priest who horrifically used the very words of consecration before abusing her. It's important to see, Benedict writes, quote, that such misconduct by clerics ultimately damages the faith, end quote. And Dr. Chad Pecknold, our most recent PopeCast guest, writing at the Catholic Herald, expounded on why it's good that Benedict addresses sexual abuse in the context of abuse of the Eucharist. What Catholics proclaim, of course, to be the real presence of Jesus Christ when consecrated at Mass, body, blood, soul, and divinity, despite many critics objecting to Benedict's correlation. Pecknold writes, quote, To some this sounds like a changing of the subject, and in a way they're right. It is changing the subject from ourselves to Christ, but not in a way which diminishes the centrality of our concern for victims, but which positively places them with Christ at the center uniting their suffering to the only other victim who can heal such a wound. Christ has been abused in the victims who each bear his image, and Christ has been abused wherever the Most Holy Eucharist is not treated with the greatest reverence human beings are capable of offering. End quote. 
I admit, the idea of comparing the legal to the theological or physical acts of abuse with the abuses in the liturgy and a lack of belief in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist seems uh, foreign. It certainly did for me. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized how much that thought is just a product of the society we currently live in, that there's quote-unquote real life, and then there's church on Sunday, as if the two are completely separate. Lord knows many, I shudder to think that it might be most Christians, Catholic or not, nowadays treat their faith like that and have for decades. I'm sure anyone schooled in theology will, or is, will cringe at this analogy, but it's almost like a, a PB&J after the sandwich is made. You can no longer consider the peanut butter without considering the jam. They're bound up together. Though distinct from one another, anything that affects one affects the other. So it is with our soul and body. Anything that affects the body affects the soul, and it's just as true with the body of the church. And in this letter, Benedict reminds us of that and shines a bright light on it. This is the main irony that Barnes pointed out in an earlier post, closer to the release of Benedict's letter, critiquing the Twitter thread of Father James Martin on the issue. Father Martin, Barnes noted, blames the church for the cover-up and then criticizes Benedict for not placing enough emphasis on pedophilia as a psychological ailment. And here I'll quote directly from Barnes's post. Quote, of cuss word course, there is an element of psychological illness in pedophilia. The person is not a refrigerator of leftovers in which the psychological can be tupperware away from the moral. A profound psychological problem is another way of describing a profound problem of the psyche, the soul, the unity of which is disintegrated by habitual sin. The fact that sexually abusing children neither comes from nor leads to psychological health or holism is not a reason to declare it unrelated, or even only secondarily related to a lack of inner holiness. Rather, it is resounding evidence that the moral life and the psychological life form a whole, and while they are not always synonymous, they are nevertheless inextricably bound up with each other. End quote. On the splitting of life and church point, Father Harrison noted that it's worth looking back to an address Benedict gave in 2008 in France, for the 150th anniversary of the apparition of Our Lady of Lourdes. Benedict was talking about the monastic movement, how St. Benedict and his confrères essentially propped up Western civilization, rebuilding it from the rubble of the once mighty Roman Empire. Specifically, how all that came to pass is what he was talking about, what those monks were motivated by, how did they live. Here's Benedict in 2008. Quote, It was not their intention to create a culture nor even to preserve a culture from the past. Their motivation was much more basic. Their goal was querere deum. Amid the confusion of the times, in which nothing seemed permanent, they wanted to do the essential, to make an effort to find what was perennially valid and lasting, life itself. They were searching for God, end quote. And that, in my estimation, is the whole point of Benedict's letter, and is the key, as Father Harrison pointed out, to understanding both the pro and the con side of the issue. Benedict is in the last years of his illustrious and adventurous life, where his critics seem to be concerned for him about the optics of not getting everything just right, about how it's, quote, damaged his reputation, as Fagioli wrote hand-wringingly in Commonweal, Benedict seemingly couldn't care less. We know that much by his actions. The Pope Emeritus cares for God and God alone. He is Benedict's refuge and his only sounding board. Benedict hopes as much for the church and her people that we all might put the Lord at the center and let our behavior regarding sexual abuse and everything else flow supernaturally from that friendship. And for those worried that this was somehow a shot across the bow at Francis, I'm of the, I guess, unpopular opinion that when Francis encouraged young people at World Youth Day in 2013 to make a mess, 
He likes a little mess making himself too. I draw that conclusion on the narrow on this particular issue at least. Don't write to me about other issues. We can talk about that later. On this narrow issue, I draw that conclusion from the one-two punch of Father Raymond D'Souza's article in the Catholic Herald explaining why Benedict chose to not let the Vatican's official media arm release his letter, and from Cardinal Gerhard Müller, former chief of the Vatican's doctrinal arm, Benedict's old job, writing a long, most excellent take in the magazine First Things. Father D'Souza notes how the Vatican media has been notoriously unreliable and downright dishonest in some cases, and have actually burned Benedict before. He also points out that in addition to releasing the letter in a German periodical, that the English translation was ready to go immediately as well, and this was intentional on Benedict's part. D'Souza concludes his essay with the following, quote, Why did Benedict employ the means that he did to release his essay? Because he knows that neither those in Rome nor in Germany are trustworthy, end quote. And then there's Cardinal Mueller, literally at the very beginning of his own essay, clarifies something that the world has long speculated, that, quote, Pope Francis is happy with Benedict XVI's profound analysis of the reasons behind the abuse crisis in the church, and grateful to his predecessor for pointing out the conclusions those in positions of responsibility must draw, end quote. I'd encourage reading the whole thing, but one other part in particular from Cardinal Mueller stood out, writing as he was just a couple weeks out from the tragic Notre Dame fire in France. Quote, at age 92, Benedict XVI is capable of deeper theological reflection than his critics, who lack respect and are ideologically blinded. He is able to get closer to the source of the fire that has set the church's roof ablaze, the catastrophic fire in Paris, in one of Christendom's most venerable houses of God, also has a symbolic meaning. It makes us appreciate again the work of good firefighters, instead of blaming them for the water damage done in the course of extinguishing the flames. Rebuilding and renewing the whole church can only succeed in Christ if we get our bearings by the church's teaching on faith and morals, end quote. So that's kind of it for the recap, but perhaps maybe a last word as well on a personal note. I'm under no false pretenses here that there's intrigue and scandal in the church. Lord knows it, and probably more than we'd like to stomach that we'll never see the light of day. But there are many in the church who seek to bend this letter by Benedict from all that I've read and seen. I'm sure you have too. The fact that there are two living popes, the fact that Benedict resigned in the first place, you name it. But they just seem to just stoke the controversy simply to drum up clicks and views. Kyle Helmick of a Catholic Twitter fame expressed it pretty well in a Twitter thread that's linked in the show notes. It's a bit worrisome when it seems some Catholics are just looking to cash in on the thing that's supposed to be getting them to heaven, as he said, especially at the expense of real unity. Creating an outrage mob because you don't like Francis or not putting bias aside when reading Benedict and stoking similar anger is decidedly not the way to heaven. Narrow is the way, friends. I don't even really know how to phrase it, but just be careful what you listen to and who you read for what it's worth, especially when it comes to matters of the heart, the soul, eternal salvation. Don't be a troll. Use the brain God gave you, and most of all, be not afraid. Jesus is still in charge of his church. Heck, listeners of the podcast should know by now that we've seen worse in 20 centuries. I do this podcast because I spent a year learning and writing about every pope in the history of the church. I absolutely love papal history now and want to share that with others who are equally as nerdy as I am, or at least aspire to be, I don't know. I hope it's helpful and enjoyable to my listeners, and I appreciate and pray very much for the patrons who contribute and help cover the cost of this little papal history machine. But this is just a hobby at the end of the day. What Pope Benedict talked about at the end of his letter, the goal that evangelization is being, quote, to establish habitats of faith and above all to find and recognize them, that's what's most important. For that, we'll get us to heaven. 
Okay, Soapbox Over. All the links mentioned here and more are all included in the show notes as a sort of digest of takes on Benedict's letter. But I hope you enjoyed this little recap. And if you did, I hope you'll tell your friends. If you haven't already, you can find us and leave a review at iTunes, or if you're not an Apple lover, see other links to listen to the podcast or direct your friends at thepopecast.fm. That's thepopecast.fm. Also, if you're enjoying the podcast and want to ensure we can keep churning these out, visit patreon.com slash Matt Sewell for a buck or two an episode. You can get uh, early access to each podcast episode plus access to other sweet patron-only benefits. So that's patreon.com slash M-A-T-T-S-E-W-E-L-L. And then lastly, if you want more content during the week uh, for sweet Pope quotes and Saint Feast Day bios and things, uh, be sure to check us out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at thepopecast, at thepopecast. But that's it for this week. We'll be back with our usual papal bios on the next episode. But until then, thanks again for listening to the Popecast. Until next time. Mm-hmm.